At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You're in for a remarkable, historically important, and I believe you're ready for this one, life-changing conversation today if you embrace the lessons within it. So on the front side, before I even do any of the introduction, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, grab your favorite pen, grab something to sip on. You will need it during this conversation because here we go. On April 19th, 1995, may feel like a lifetime ago for many of us and yesterday for some, Amy Downs was working as a teller for the Federal Employees Credit Union. It was located in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City when her life changed instantly, dramatically, and permanently. A loud boom erupted and darkness enveloped her as a three-story free fall began in total darkness. Finding herself entombed in concrete, not having any idea what had just happened, she begged God to give her just another chance. Just give me another chance. More than six hours later, Amy was one of the last survivors to be pulled from the rubble following the deadliest destruction, domestic terror attack in our nation's history, which killed 168 people in Oklahoma City, including 18 of her 33 co-workers. Embracing her second chance. That's what today's message is. Embracing her second chance. Amy embarked on a transformational victim-to-victorhood mindset. She became a champion in her work, education, health, spirit, and love. This is not an overnight success, but it's a worthy one. Once someone who could not pass her college math class, once someone who weighed more than 350 pounds, once someone who was broken in every relationship and struggled with self-worth, Amy's journey of self-improvement empowered her to earn an MBA to complete a full Ironman triathlon, to find love again, to ultimately have a child, and more than that, to feel truly fulfilled in her life. It's an awesome conversation that you are set up to hear today. Today, Amy serves as the president and the CEO of the same credit union where she worked as a loan officer on that faithful day. My friends, I said it on the front side. You're going to hear it again right now. You are going to love this conversation. It's emotional. It's real. You will laugh. You will cry. You will feel. And you will be inspired to move from survivor's guilt, overcoming trauma that maybe you've experienced. And you will hear a message that reminds us that hope is a verb we can enact today to transform our lives and our futures. I'm looking forward to sharing this transformational wake-up call today with you on reminding you of the value and the power of your life's purpose today. My friends, for many of us, this is your second chance. Let's get ready to rock and roll as I bring on my friend and soon-to-be-yours. Her name is Amy Downs. Amy, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm on a podcast today with a friend, someone that I look up to, someone whose story I'm confident that at the end of this conversation, every one of my listeners from this country to one of the more than 120 other nations that tune in will be looking up to as an example of something they can achieve in their own lives. But before we get there, Amy, because that's a pretty high bar to cross over, let's just start with introductions. If I bumped into you in, say, credit union in Oklahoma City, 
And I said, hey, my name is John O'Leary. What's yours? How would you introduce yourself from there? I'm Amy Downs. I am the chief encouraging officer at my place of employment, which I love. I'm planning the next chapter of my life. And I'm excited about that. Well, when you, you're so nonspecific, it always leads to the question, tell me more. So we're going to learn more about the current chapter, the previous chapters, and what's to come in a moment. But let's go back to the very beginning. Talk about your childhood growing up. Mm, so I grew up in the South, in Louisiana. I have a big family, five brothers and sisters, and really had a gr really blessed childhood, honestly. But I struggled with school, and I barely graduated high school. I went on to college because that's what you were supposed to do. And uh, flunked out of that because I couldn't pass the math class, oh. the remedial math class, not even the one you get credit hours for. And then my boyfriend broke up with me. And so back then you couldn't live with your parents till you were 40. You had to like figure something out. And I didn't know what to do with my life. My sister lived in Oklahoma City. And so she was telling me, you just need a fresh start, come to Oklahoma City. So in the 80s, I came to Oklahoma City when everybody else was leaving because, you know, that was during the oil bust. And took my amazing math skills and applied for a job as a teller at the credit union inside the federal building. This girl who barely tripped her way out of high school, flunks out of college because she can't get by remedial math, moves to Oklahoma City out of Louisiana, and immediately gets picked up by the local credit union. Yeah, I really lucked out though. So during the interview, the CEO came in and it was a female CEO, which was really surprising. Back then, that was uncommon for me to see. And she just had this really amazing personality. And, but it was funny because during the interview, she asked, she walked in during my interview and said, oh, you're the one applying for the teller job. Um, tell me, what's your birthday? Which, of course, now you can't ask that in an interview. But I told her and she goes, oh, you're an Aries. We need another Aries. She tells the lady interview me. We need to hire her. We need another Aries. That is how I got my job. Thankfully, because if they would have asked about the math, it wouldn't have gone well. Well, apparently it worked. So the area was your, your entrance into the organization. You stick you around go. for a while. What year were you hired? I was hired in 1988. This was the company that you fell in love with. They fell in love with you and you fell in love with people. Just talk about some of the folks that you worked with that you uh, yeah. were to love. Well, when I first went to work there, I didn't know that I was going to love it. I didn't feel like I fit in and I was, you know, struggling. I was in a downward spiral in my personal life. You know, my boyfriend broke up with me. I'm in this new city. I didn't fit in very well. I didn't feel like at the job. And I just felt lost. I felt very, very lost. But over time, like I met, there was another new girl that was hired and we became just fast friends. Her name was Sonia and she was funny. And, you know, it's amazing. One friend at work. I heard some research recently that said that too. You just need one friend at work. You know, it can change everything. And it did. It changed everything for me having that one friend. And then, you know, as the years ticked on, you know, I, it became family. It was my support group. This was before cell phones and email. So you couldn't, you know, text everybody back home. You know, when you moved away, you moved away. But they became my new family. And there was a, a lady there I really admired. She became my boss. I, I applied six times to get off the teller line. So every time there was an opening, I would apply and I, they used to issue you a letter. I used to save those rejection letters for years. I don't know why. I had six of them. Finally, they had nobody else to turn to. And I got promoted and became the credit card clerk. So I got to post credit card payments. And I loved my boss. She was amazing. And she was a mentor to me. Her name was Vicki. So yeah, I loved the people I worked with. It was 28 women. It was just a, a good close group, you know, and we served the people, the federal employees in the building. That's all our business model was, was to take care of their financial needs. You know, savings, checking, loans, credit cards, we took care of them. So the building that Amy's referring to is the Murrah Federal Building, and that's a name many of you may recognize. And for those few who may not, you're about to, because it's a turning point, not only in, in Amy's story, but nationally. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big deal, still is. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to go back in time to April 19th, 1995. Mm -hmm. pretty ordinary date. You know, we just roll through calendars as we live our lives. So you get up, you go to work. And what do you remember from that morning? I remember it was beautiful. You know, Oklahoma, our weather can be crazy. And that morning it was beautiful. Blue skies, red buds in bloom, calm wind, gorgeous day. And I spent the first hour 
chatting with all my friends and goofing off. And I remember that because I remember seeing my boss walking down the hall for a nine o'clock meeting and I saw her and I was like, oh, need to get to work. I've been goofing off all morning. So yeah, just a normal morning. No idea anything bad was going to happen. I sat down to start working and one of my friends, uh, coworkers who was seven months pregnant came and sat down beside me. And, um, you know, that morning, and it just been such a, just a great morning. Sonia, my best friend, Sonia, she had been invited to attend a supervisor meeting. And back then there was a term called a um, power suit and she got to work. She was so funny. She was like, y'all look at me. I tried <laughs> to pick out a power suit and she was, bless her heart, in a bright yellow, full bright yellow suit. And she goes, but my sister told me I look like a big old yellow sunflower. <laughs> she did. <laughs> and we're By like, the way, for, for my Midwest, Northern, Western and Eastern listeners here in the country and from around the world, when, when someone from the South says, bless your heart, that is not, actually not a compliment. It, it means they have done something poorly. So apparently this yellow jumpsuit that Sonia's wearing is not working. No, 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 you're right. So anyway, but she is so good natured about it and we're laughing and she goes off you know, to the meeting and my boss goes to the meeting. All the supervisors go to this meeting and I go back to my desk to start my day. And I remember, um, you know, turning to ask the girl that walked in to sit down next to me what she needed. And I don't know if I ever said anything or not, because right as I was getting ready to say, what do you need? That's when the bomb went off. And you know, I, I, it happens so fast, so incredibly fast. It's like a million things happening in one millisecond. Yes. You know, everything just went dark and I could feel this powerful rushing sensation like I was falling and I could hear screaming all around me and I could hear what sounded like fireworks going off. And I was falling. I was falling three floors and I was buried under about 10 feet of rubble. I was still in my chair. The screaming stopped. But I didn't know where I was. I, I, it had happened so fast. When it happened, I remember thinking maybe I'd been shot in the back of the head. Um, working for a financial institution, you do always worry about robbery. And that was the only thing that I could even piece together. I, because I, the noise and, and the falling, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And, but I began praying just the minute that it happened. And when everything got quiet, I remember, you know, trying to see, like straining to open my eyes and I couldn't see anything and I couldn't move and it was very hard to breathe and it was hot. I was yelling for help, but nobody would reply. I laid there thinking maybe whatever had happened was so bad that maybe like I'm the only person left alive in the world or, so I, you know, was the nuclear bomb. Like, you know, I don't know, you know, I could hear siren going off in the distance. So I thought, okay, I'm still alive. Cause I also wondered, was I dead? Like, yes, did right. happen and I'm dead. And uh, so I decided I was alive and I just laid there and I just kept praying. And it was about 45 minutes. I found out later that had passed before I heard men's voices and they said, okay, let's split up. Let's look for the daycare babies. And so when I heard these voices, I started screaming and a man says, I hear you child. How old are you? And I remember like I didn't answer him right away because I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm 28. You know, he thinks I'm a child. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm 28. And he said, that's OK. We have a live one. We have a live one. We need backup. And he starts yelling for help. And, you know, to your point where you said this was really historical and in, in, in nature, when they said, we can't see you, we have to follow the sound of your voice. Keep talking to us. I asked them what happened and they told me that it had been a bomb. But it, I did not understand our country, we didn't have stories of car bombs. I didn't know what that was. Right. My dad fought in World War II. So I thought when they said a bomb, I'm thinking we've gone to war like a plane has flown overhead. Like it, I didn't understand for quite a little while that this bomb only happened to the building I was in. Mm. But they reached me. They grabbed my hand. My right hand was sticking out of the side of the rubble pile. And they grabbed my hand. And I thought they were going to pull me up and out. I'm free. They're here. They've got me. Like, this is it. It's over. But about the time they grab my hand, I hear men yelling in the background. There's another bomb. There's another bomb. We need everybody to go. Let's go. Let's go. There's another bomb. And the men were talking over this saying, Amy, we just need to get some hydraulic equipment. We're going to be right back. Yeah. But I could hear and I knew and I just kept telling them my name and to tell my family I love them because I mm. knew that, that this was it. This was it. And so they left. 
and I was laying there. I can't see anything. I can't move. I know it's been a bomb, and I now know there's another one. And the intense feeling of regret that I felt for not having lived my life, had t- for taking it for granted, was just so huge because it's like in that split moment, I knew what was really important and it was too late. And it was like, I, I, I'm getting ready to die, but I've actually never really lived. Mm. And I just wasted so much of my life and I didn't know I was wasting it. You know, 28, we think we're going to live forever. Right. And I, I just started praying and just begging God for another chance. And I would do things different. I remember, you know, trying to quote scripture. You know, we grew up in in the South in church and like other good Southern Christian girls that go to children's church, you memorize scripture and they give you candy. So, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking surely I can remember scripture. And the only one I could remember was though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. That was the only part of the scripture I could remember. And I remember just being so bothered by that because the reality was I didn't know what was going to come next at all. First of all, the story is so profound. It's hard to even get the words out to ask the right questions next. So I'm just going to stubble my way through this. You are up on what floor when the bomb explodes? The third floor. And you find yourself eventually at the ground floor, essentially, because you've fallen all the way down to ground level. Is that correct? Yes. It, the, re, the the searchers are looking around now because they come in. They're looking for the babies. Are they mm-hmm. children? Make some noises. Tell our listeners who may not know who are they looking for. So the the um, in this nine story building of, of federal law enforcement and all federal employees, we were on the third floor and there was a daycare on the second floor. And what I didn't know is that we had all fallen to the bottom of this building. Um, actually slightly a little bit below, but I didn't know that. And I just thought they were confused when they said they were looking for babies. I didn't understand. Right. Mm-hmm. So these these men, these searchers are looking for babies. And that just breaks my heart to even think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hear your voice. They find you. They make your way over to you. You're buried essentially under t- 10 feet of rubble. But they're going to pull you out. You know mm-hmm. that. You're saved. And then you hear over the radio, there's a second bomb, everybody out. What, what's what's the pain like when you're so close to being saved only to have those who have come to rescue you turn their back on you and leave you again buried and alone and hot and in pain and by yourself? I don't have the words. I don't really have the words to describe that. It's... Just a desperation. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. And you know there's nothing you can do. So you can't even get upset because there's nothing you can do. Right. All you all I could do is pray. That was all I could do. So you pray and you come up with the Psalms. Little I walk through the valley of the death, and then you, you get lost for words. Yeah. But the prayer is heard. And the, the searchers come back. And you made a commitment buried under the rubble that if you ever had a second chance, you would take it. Would you talk about what it's like to be on the gurney being removed from the former federal building and onto the ambulance? When they finally pulled me free, oh, it hurt. Everything came alive. But I remember looking around and just thinking, this isn't real. You know, it had been a beautiful morning, you know, blue skies earlier. It looked like the middle of winter. The sky, which is now dark, it's cold, starting to rain. But I will never forget taking that first breath of fresh air and promising God I will never live my life the same. And I didn't know about my injuries. I didn't know about my friends. I just knew that if I made it through this alive, I was going to live my life differently. Let's talk about a couple of those things, because you said, I did not know about my injuries. I did not know about my friends. So in sequence, let's talk about your injuries. What were your injuries? Well, when I got to the hospital, they told me that I was very lucky that all I had was a little cut on my leg. So for about a day or so, I assumed that I had like a Band-Aid on my leg or something cut. 
I was wrapped from head to toe because of all the glass, little bitty nicks everywhere. And I was so sore, I couldn't move. So it's not like I could sit up or look, you know, for myself. So I just assumed, you know, I had a little cut. Actually, my leg was blown open. But the doctor said this would be the only time in my life that a surgeon would tell me it was a good thing that I weighed 355 pounds because my one, when I fell, my chair stayed attached with me. So that helped protect me. And then also my bone, I didn't lose my bone. So my leg was, was opened up, but in relationship to what could have happened to me, yes, it was a little cut, but the hardest part was in the hospital finding out that 18 of my 33 coworkers had been killed. Getting the phone calls every day, asking if I remembered what someone had were to work that morning so that they could identify their bodies. And I couldn't, I couldn't remember what anybody wore except for Sonia. She was the only person I could remember what she had on. And she had two-year-old and three-year-old baby girls at home. That was the hardest part. It wasn't the injuries. It was dealing with so much death. Mm. You know, we, we go through these things that seem completely like our stories, and yet we go through them collectively. And whether we know that or not, it is true. We're doing this life together. As you are going through your injuries and as you're mourning Sonia and that beautiful yellow sunflower suit that she wore that day, um, you also have a friend of yours who's being treated right down the hall. And yeah. you two are going to go through this day and yeah. eventually life together, hand in hand. Would you, would you talk about at least having somebody who understood both yeah. the pain and the opportunity of healing together? Yeah. And that's actually really huge, yeah. especially this time of year. So there was a girl that I worked with and we weren't necessarily best friends, but we were always friends. She was best friends with Karen. I was best friends with Sonia and uh, Karen was killed and Sonia was killed. And Terry, the one, she was down the hall in the same hospital and our families figured it out. She had um, asbestos in her eyes and was kind of blinded for like the first 48 hours. And when she came to, she was understandably upset, trying to figure out what happened. So they got the idea to wheel her hospital bed into my room. So they wheel Terry's bed into my room and there wasn't any words spoken. We just reached out over the rails of our hospital bed and we just joined hands. Hmm. And there's been so many times like that, even this time of year, we were texting last night together. There's nobody, well, let's say nobody understands, but very few people understand PTSD and anniversaries and things like that. And we're nearing the anniversary. And she's always the person that even if we're in a place of life, like right now, we're, um, she's retired and raising a granddaughter and we don't see each other every day anymore. I know it doesn't matter if it's been two years or when I can reach out to her and she understands. So, mm. yeah, there's a lot of power in having someone that understands what, what you're walking through, you know. You mentioned PTSD and survivor's guilt a moment ago. You mentioned losing 18 of your 33 friends. There was a woman who was seated literally next to you, and you just started speaking with her. You don't even remember if you got the words out who, who lost her life. You talked earlier about Sonia, who was right down the hall in the beautiful brand new jumpsuit, who lost her life. And you have your life. As you physically heal, how do you wrestle with why am I here and they aren't? I would love to give you some words of wisdom on that, but you're going to have to give them to me. I, I know what they say. I know you're not supposed to. With Robin, who was sitting right next to me, I've thought a hundred times if I'd have just acknowledged her right when she walked in, she'd have gone on down the hall. She'd have been fine. I've played that game over and over in my head. Um, Sonia had two baby girls. I had no children. I never made sense of it. I don't have sense of it. I don't understand. And it does, people try to say things and I understand they're trying to help you. There's a reason you're here. There's yeah. what she didn't have a reason. Like I'm not better than she is. I'm not, I, I, it's, it's, I don't have an answer for any of that. And it haunts me, honestly. Um, yeah. To this day, 
Um, every promotion I received, I would be very well aware of those who would have been in line before me and mm. maybe better gifted for it. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a messy thing. And I, listen, I just want to call out, like, I appreciate you talking about it. Th th these types of parts of the conversation we're having aren't the fun part. Mm -hmm. And yet it's part of the story, I think, that almost all of us share of going through something and we wonder, why are we here and they're not? Why did I clean, skate through this and someone else did not? Why did they get that diagnosis and I did not? Why did I survive the bombing and they did not? So the pain that you're sharing right now, and it's echoed in your voice, it's also echoed in the way we hear it because we've lived it too. Not to the degree you have, but I think every one of our listeners and certainly the one asking the questions are nodding their heads along with you. Like, who's, how do we explain this? We can't. But one thing we can do is strive to live for those who weren't able to, to live for themselves. Mm -hmm. And just because we're able to doesn't mean we do. Like, that's really important. Just because we can live better doesn't mean we, in fact, do. Amy, you have. And it wasn't like you came out of the hospital on fire and the music's playing as you start running down the street. But you have taken step after step after step to improve not only your business, but your individual life and the lives of those you affect. So we're going to go through some of those things. I've heard you say in the past that as a credit union, you were galvanized around the mission of serving those who no longer could work alongside of you. Why did that matter? So it became personal. I felt like if our credit union disappeared, it meant Sonia disappeared. It meant Vicky disappeared. Like it became so personal that we had to survive or somehow their memories, their contribution, which I know that's not true, but it just, it did. It just became so personal that we were going to, we were going to do this. We were going to figure it out which we went from free space. Like we didn't pay for space. We didn't even have margin or profit built into anything because we had free space. And our business model was to serve people in a building, in the building that no longer existed and over half of our employees were gone. How do you come back after that? And I look back now and I'm like, I, it's, it's, it's a miracle. You know, yeah. it's a miracle. But Leonard. we were determined, we had clarity, and we knew what we wanted, and we just kept doing the next right thing over mm. and over. And we started getting really good at making action steps and plans and doing the next right thing. And it was through that process, actually, that I did finally gain the confidence, the momentum, maybe, if you will, to start tackling some things in my personal life. Because one day I had this, like, oh, if I can do these things at work, you know, what about my messed up? personal life like can yes. I tackle some things there you know the same way well let's talk about that Lynette Leonard is that a name that's familiar to you yes it is and in fact I saw her last night she's an incredible incredible woman mentor to me and so many others very thankful for her she put in your hand a magic wand mm -hmm. and said if you could make anything happen what would you do and I, I know I'm getting the story a little bit wrong here, but generally tell us who Lynette is and uh, what was yeah. she trying to empower you to do? Well, she was the new CEO that came in just a year or so after the bombing and was faced with just crazy odds. We had to build a building with no money and all kinds of things. And she was asking our team for our contribution to what needed to be done. And so she asked me, she said, if you were me, what would you be focusing on here at work? Well, I'm like, she's a CEO. Like, how do you answer that? That's like, do I look fat in this outfit? You know what I mean? The boss is saying, what do you think I should be working on? So I sort of kind of hedged a little. And she said, no, 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 Let me rephrase this. You have a magic wand. Like, what would you, you have the magic wand. You're in charge. What do you do? And it was, sounds silly, but it just unlocked my brain to start saying, oh, well, I would, we'd have this great culture. We would, I started describing what it would be like. And she said, after she heard me out, she said, okay. I like that. She said, given your current situation and your current limitations, I want you to write down the very smallest steps you can take now to start working toward that picture you just described. Mm. And when I left her office, it was exciting because I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, uh oh, am I in charge of culture now? What just happened? But I'm like, you know, she gave me hope. So I like this definition of hope that the authors of a book called Hope Rising describe where they say hope is the belief that you're future can be better and brighter than your past, but that you actually play a role in making that happen. Well, if you've ever been a victim, 
you know, we're invited in these situations to be a victim and we're a victim of it, but you can stay there as a victim or not. And if you take that approach of given the current situation limitations, what can I do? You can't be a victim anymore because you're now mm. saying, what can I do? You're moving into overcomer at that point. And so that was just really powerful for me to no longer blame things on other people, on the bombing, on whatever. It took all that away and said, no, given those situations and limitations, what can I do to work toward that? And that really changed my life. We could spend the rest of the podcast talking about culture and vision, vision and mission and top line revenue and bottom line profitability of the credit union. And it would be a, a very entertaining, important conversation. But I want to talk about how you apply these things individually, because I think that's for the majority of our listeners. That's what we need. That's what we need. Right. So this girl who failed her way out of high school, barely made it into college, then fails out of math. One of the small steps you, you decide you can do is you can go back to school mm-hmm. and continue and continue and continue. And ultimately you get your MBA. Just talk briefly about that journey. Yeah. So um, one day when I had the thought of maybe I could take control of my life, you know, cause I, I knew I was still haunted by the, I want to live my life different, you know? And so I wrote down on index card, I want to go back to school. And the very first step was to just find the phone number to call LSUS to figure out how to even get my transcript. I mean, that's how small steps I'm talking about is look up a phone number and then get your transcript and then figure out what college will actually take your 0.50 grade point average. And, you know, I mean, little steps, very little steps. And then constantly, you know, visiting that. You can't, it's not one and done. It's a constant revisit of where you're going and what the next step is. And, And by the time I graduated, I had so much confidence because this was really a hard thing for me. I'm, I'm not the smartest person. I have ADHD. It's hard to learn. And when I graduated with my degree, oh my gosh, like I was on fire. So I'm like, I'm going to keep going. And I'm like, what else can I do? And I was 355 pounds. So I started thinking, you know what? I need to apply the same thing. I need to apply the same logic and reason. And I need to tackle this. I had joined so many diet programs so many times. And every time I gained weight, I'm like, something's not working. I got to look at this different. So I started researching medical solutions, surgeries. Like I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to be embarrassed. You know, if something is preventing me, my boss wouldn't tell me this. If something's preventing you from living your life, you need to figure it out. You know, whatever it takes and don't worry how anybody judges you. Get a hold of what you need to get a hold of and fix it. And so I did. I, I sure did. I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do the, a surgery, a weight loss surgery. And I did. And they warned me, they were like, now this isn't a miracle. If you don't start exercising, you're going to gain it back. But of course I promised I was going to exercise. I promised. And I'd go in for my checkup and they would ask me if I was exercising. And I would very honestly say, yes, I'm walking. Cause you know, I parked my car in the parking lot and I walk across the parking lot to walk to that appointment. Well, after losing about 75 pounds, that weight stopped. And I realized, oh no, like I really, I do. Okay. Current situation limitations. This did not fix me totally. I've now got to put in the work. And so then it started with, okay, I'm going to find a gym that I can go to and I'm going to join a gym. And then it was, you know, and again, just leveling up. And then my sister was a cyclist and she was always putting on this bandex and riding her bike and thought, you know, I'd kind of like to find a bike I could sit on that I wouldn't worry that the tires were going to pop. So I got out a note card again. I'm going to ride a bike. And my first thing was to find a bike with big tires. Because that's what I was so afraid of. Those little skinny tires, there's no way I could sit on it, you know. So um, anyway, so yeah, I found a bike. And I went with my sister and I rode around a lake here. And the first time I rode around that lake nine miles, I'm like, I am freaking Lance Armstrong. Give me my medal. (laughs) Like, I am freaking amazing. I thought I had, I'm serious. I did not know people did stuff. Like, to me, that was huge. Yes. Later, I went on to start riding my bike across the state of Oklahoma every year and doing 100 miles at Hotter and Hell 100. So now that that nine miles sounds silly, but man, it was huge to me back then. Doesn't sound too silly to me and the vast majority of our listeners. So you. You find a bike with the appropriate size tires. You make that nine mile loop around the lake and then you do it twice and a third time. And then you ride across the state of Oklahoma 500. 
and then you start running yeah. and then you start swimming and then you start yeah. competing and then you finish in an Ironman. Would, would you just remind our listeners, because they've had some other Ironman on the, on the podcast, but what are the numbers that you have to hit in order to accomplish finishing an Ironman? Okay. So, um, and two, I might add, this is when I turned 50. So if anybody out there is younger than that, like, well, I don't know what your excuse is. I was 50. But I was 50 and I thought, I'm going to do this thing. It's a 2.4 mile swim first. I do this 2.4 mile swim, followed by 112 mile bike ride, followed by a 26.2 marathon, full marathon. It all has to be done within 17 hours. And there's time cuts along the way in order to make it. And I was very aware of that because I'm slow. I'm back at the, what they call back of the pack. Swimming is slow. And I knew I was barely going to be coming in on that swim. So I had to, you know, I had to, I had to get the swim down. And that was very difficult because when I went to learn to swim, you have to swim in a lake. You can't swim in a pool. In Oklahoma, you can't see in your lakes. There, you can't see anything in front of you. So the first time I went to swim and I put my head down in the lake, it was a PTSD trigger because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't. So I had to kind of work through the whole bombing thing again because it felt like I was buried alive. So there was a lot that had to go into that. But um, I show up to do this Ironman and I made it through the swim cut and made it through the bike cut. I got to the run cut and thought, and I'd been praying about this, you know, and I get to the run portion and I start having a conversation with God and I'm like, you know, God, this was a stupid idea. I don't know why I said I would do this. I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care. Like, seriously, I don't, I don't even want it. I don't care. I don't need another medal. I could care less. And I meant it. Like, I, for real, I was like, this was stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. And but I remember praying and saying, but God, if there's some reason I'm supposed to finish this thing, you got to help me because I can't, I'm done. And about that time I'd hired a coach and she was virtual, but she had come to volunteer for the event out of the darkness. Here she pops, Amy, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm looking at my Garmin and I'm look, I'm doing the math and I'm like, I can't finish. I don't have enough. The, my pace is too slow. She goes, no, remember you didn't get in the water until 715. Cause I thought I was done at midnight. I had midnight in my brain. She was like, no, you've got that extra 15 minutes. Got 12, 15. And the minute, you know, your brain, if you think you can do it, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. Yeah. And so as soon as I thought, oh, I actually have a chance. Then I, I kicked back in and I started going and I crossed the finish line last. I'm my ad. I was the last official finisher, but I did it. I did it. The former teller who failed out of school becomes the CEO who gets her MBA, who goes from 355 pounds to finishing the Iron Man, who goes from unlucky and unhappy and ultimately divorced in love to being on fire and lit up in a relationship, marriage. The, the lady who did not want children goes on to raising a beautiful child. Your life has turned dramatically, mm -hmm. profoundly, one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And I was telling my wife about your story last night and I didn't give her the full context, but she's one of the things Beth said to me is it's almost too good to be true. And I said, well, what makes it so awesome is how long it took. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you came out of the hospital and like you're a new you. That happens for some of us, but not the majority. You, you did the ugly work of, of showing up day after day after day. And decades later, you're an overnight success. So Amy, I just, I, I love your story. I love your heart. And I do have a couple of questions for you before we, we switch into the Live Inspired 7. The first is on April 19th, 2000. So April 19th, 2000, uh, there was a federal park established in Oklahoma City to honor those who both survived the attack, but also those who lost their lives. And I'm just curious, when you uh, visit the Oklahoma City National Museum, what do you think? It's hallowed ground is the only way I can describe it. They did a beautiful, phenomenal job. If you've not come to visit, it's powerful. It's um, it's actually uplift. It's not all depressing. It's actually pretty uplifting because it tells the story of how our city came together and they did a really great job, a very, very good job. I'm an easy cry one-to-one. -one. I seldom get moved in monuments. Uh, some of the things in DC moved me to tears. The Vietnam Wall, most certainly. September 11th monument in New York City every time. When I'm in Oklahoma City and I go down to that memorial, I'm done. Yeah. 
th- those chairs. Yeah. And then you look from the chairs and you see a lot of little chairs. So for our friends who've never seen that reflecting pond and they've yeah. never seen the chairs or the little ones, t- tell our, uh, our listeners yeah. what that is. The concept is that the chairs represent that empty seat at the table. You know, when that loved one in, in your family passes away and you look over and there's an empty chair, you know, at Thanksgiving meal or whatever. It's, it's, the, it's the missing person in your life, you know. And so there's these empty chairs. The small ones represent the children and they're by floor. So when you look at those chairs, the row one are the people on the first floor, second floor. My floor was the third floor. So when I'm there and I look, I gaze over and I see the chairs all along the third floor. And it's just a representation of the whole left in our hearts of yeah. the, the people that were so dear to all of us that, that we lost. The reason you lost that, and we can go back in time and point fingers wherever we, we want, but certainly one of them must be pointed at Timothy McVeigh. When you hear that name, what thoughts cross your mind? Originally, I would have really, really bitter thoughts, you know, like let's let's lock him up in a room, let's set a bomb off, tell him not tell him when it's gonna go off. Like, you know, I I I originally had a lot of I'm not saying I don't have bitter thoughts now too, but yeah. I think that, that I've had some healing as far as that goes to work through that so that I don't become a bitter person. Mm. For those of us dealing with bitterness, uh, and it may not have been as dramatic and as direct as the attack that you endured and Oklahoma City endured and your friends endured, but most of us have endured something and we, most of us are dealing with bitterness. What, what's the advice either that you took or that you might encourage us to grasp onto? I had somebody give me some advice. Everybody's journey is different. So please don't think that this, I think this should be applied to everybody. I'll just tell you what I did. So there were two, there were Nichols and McVeigh. Okay. And I was listening to a message on forgiveness about how we shouldn't let bitterness fester and we should forgive. And as I was listening to it, I'm thinking, oh yeah, it's a good, good message, good message. And all of a sudden the thought popped into my head, McVeigh and Nichols. And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, 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 that didn't count. I don't think that counts. And the person giving the message, I went and said something to her. I was like, just want to be clear. I think I have a loophole here because one, McVeigh has already been put to death. So he's not asking for my forgiveness. Nichols is in prison. What they did is beyond, like, it's wrong. It's what it, like, that's a loop. Like, I don't need to forgive these people. Like, I don't need to do any work here on myself, do I? I was expecting her to say, oh, no, 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 that didn't count. And she just got deer in the headlight look and said, I really don't know. All I can do, and this was a faith conference we were at. She said, all I'll really do is just, honestly, why don't we just point to the Bible, the Christian faith, the Bible. And when Jesus was being murdered, I just looked to what he did. And then I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Cause I know that story. I know what he did. He forgave them. And I'm like, oh, so I didn't really like that. And um, in the morning, I usually have some prayer time. And so the, I started praying something like, I don't really think I need to forgive these people. And I don't really want to, but if I'm supposed to, then, you know, please help me figure out what that means. Cause I'm not there. And I did this just out of, um, I don't know, some kind of obligation, check a box. It wasn't like I felt it. It wasn't like there was any, you know, I, it was more like, let's just do this for a little bit. One morning I caught myself actually praying for uh, Nichols, like praying that he would recognize, you know, what he had done, praying for his soul, basically. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, what's happening? What am I doing here? And and then I thought, okay, maybe, and I think that was the last time I ever, I ever, I didn't really feel I needed to do that anymore. But then I will also say, I read a newspaper article where he didn't like the food they were feeding him in prison. And then I got really mad about that. So I, I'm not there. I don't know. I, 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 that's all I know to say is that I think for me, I've just had, that's something I've had to commit to prayer is all I can say. It's a messy answer and it's perfect. And I just, I so appreciate your heart behind all of this, including forgiveness and grace and survivor's guilt and getting on the bike and riding and following through on the promise to live again, to really take advantage of the second chance you've done so brilliantly. So as we, we don't wrap up this podcast, as we live out loud through our lives, this podcast, Amy, what I want to do is walk you through seven Quick fire questions, we call them around here, the Live Inspired Seven. So take a deep swig of whatever's in your sport bottle before you get back on the bike. 
Amy, what's been the best book you've ever read? So maybe the most influential or most impactful book you've ever read? I'm going with recent just because it's recent. So recently there is a book that's been very powerful. I've listened to it twice. Craig Groeschel, The Power to Change. Oh man, I interviewed him. Like you, he was so authentic, so real, so graceful, uh, so knowledgeable, and so practical. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've never met him, but that book, I, I follow his podcast and, and leadership lessons and that book. Yeah, it's a good one. Awesome. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Louisiana that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? How about that energy? I used to say, you know, just like calm down. Like if you could bottle that up, you could sell it. Well, I would like that back now. Uh, dude, if, if you're running uh, Ironman, I think you've got the energy thing canned up. So I think you're doing all right on that front. If your home caught fire and your energetic self has an opportunity of running back in and grabbing one thing that matters. So family's out, pets are out, but you got a chance to run in and grab one thing. What one thing would you grab? A photo album. I don't, I really don't have a lot of stock in things. So that was a hard one, but a photo album. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Oklahoma city day, as the blossoms are blooming in the trees and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh gosh, that's uh, Vicki Texture. She was my boss. I want to talk to her one more time. What's the best advice Vicki? or anybody else ever gave you. So the best advice that you've ever received is? Vicki Texter gave me advice to, if it's worth doing, do it with excellence. So with that advice now ringing through your ears as a more seasoned version of yourself, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? So that young bank teller, what would you tell her? I would tell her, you're not the loser you think you are. And you're not the lost cause that you think you are. You're going to figure it out. You're going to figure it out. You just need a little magic wand, but you'll figure it out. My friend, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Amy Downs, how would you like your one sentence to read? It wasn't what happened to her. It was how she responded. Amy Downs endured an explosion that took the life of 168 other friends. Buried under the rubble, she was dug up. She took that second chance, and she's teaching the rest of us how to do likewise. It, it has been an honor visiting with you today. Thank you so much. It has been an honor for me. Thank you. My friends, that is Amy Downs, and my name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift this day is live inspired well my friends when i walk on the stage to give a keynote i often am introduced as expected to die now teaching others to truly live please welcome john o'leary in today's conversation you heard amy downs recall how she was waiting to be rescued from beneath 10 feet of rubble three stories below where it all began and say these words i'm getting ready to die and I've never actually really lived. I recognize not all of us will survive a fire or a bombing, yet we all survive difficult experiences at work and challenges in our health, being burned in relationships, being disappointed by our parents or our children or our friends or our neighbors or our government or what's the thing for you? And yet each day provides us a second chance that life is a gift. Now, the second chance is rarely easy. Today was not an overnight success story, was it? It was a decades-long journey that continues. You heard the emotion in Amy's voice. It's rarely as we plan it, and usually life is totally imperfect. But the second chance in front of us right now provides us a stunning, remarkable, miraculous gift of our life nonetheless. If you choose to seek it, and you choose to embrace it. My friends, if you enjoyed listening to Amy Downs share the story of her journey, as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, you will love the conversation that we had with my friend Rebecca Gregory, just feet away from the Boston Marathon explosion back in 2013. Rebecca Gregory was severely injured, and she spent the next 56 days 
in the hospital. Refusing to be labeled a victim, Rebecca shares the challenges she overcame since that life-changing moment and how in the midst of overwhelming pain, there is still hope to be found on the other side of tragedy. I even love that. There is still hope to be found on the other side of tragedy. Her resilience, her faith, her courage will remind you that your best days remain in front of you. If you want to learn more about the conversation with my buddy Rebecca Gregory, check it out at Live Inspired Podcast episode 262. Or if it's easier for you, just cruise on over to my website right now, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And we'll have that link in the show notes. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, family, friends, leaders, children, adults, everyone else gathered on this call in 50 states and 100 plus nations. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired Together community. I want to thank you for tuning in for this episode. And I want to remind you that in spite of the challenges that we face, and we do face them, do we not? And the headwind we face, and it's out there, is it not? That the foundation is firm that there is reason for hope, that second chances are still present, and that the best is yet to come. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Don't miss it. And live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley